0: Hello, friends. This is David Pascoe along with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 32, The George Hoffman Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life George thanks for being here today brother thank thanks David glad to be here yeah i am so excited for this episode for our remarkable listeners what we're going to cover in this episode is George is not only a remarkable human but he has gone through his life with amazing adversity resilience and he's willing to share what he learned and how you can apply it to if this is something you or a loved one struggles with. So George, I don't want to steal his thunder, but he had a bipolar disorder, anxiety, different stress disorders, and he learned how to not only control them, but live a victorious life and get married and have a child and be free. So This is an episode I'm super excited for because we're not only in a stressful society, not only every day are more people g- being put on drugs and they're not helping, they're just medicating, but George is going to talk about the balance between his process and meditation and drugs and therapy and talk therapy and the whole balanced picture of how to get well. and. Before we go on, though, as you can see in the background, if we do air this as a video cast, there's an Eagle sign. George, do I need to get my Patriots <laughs> yet, buddy? I think you should, You're although, what, what? although
1: late, lately I should take it down. It's kind of embarrassing to be an Eagles fan lately. So.
0: so what's the story with the Eagle sign? What is that all about? Well, when they were in the Super
1: Bowl against the Patriots. Um, <laughs> That's a painful my, moment. A I'm changing years. hats. Well, you, you have plenty of, plenty of happy moments. Give us our one. I know. A, I, know. I love the you know, my daughter, My daughter had some friends over. We let them stay up late and watch the game. So they made the sign and hung it up on the wall. And then when the Eagles did win, they all ran out in the street. Because right, I'm in Philadelphia. We're right in the city. And they ran out in the street, and they clanged cowbells and you know made a ruckus <laughs> in the middle awesome. of the night. It was fun. It was fun.
0: I have to tell you. I'm a Patriots fan for life. I grew up forty—I mean, 20 minutes outside of Foxborough Stadium. But mm-hmm. if they had to lose to anybody, I'm glad it was the Eagles. I really am glad. That was a great Super Bowl. It so, was a great Super Bowl. It was. And for those of you who don't watch football, you can go back and YouTube. It, it was great. So <laughs> let's get to the story, though. How this show works is you're going to share your remarkable story. Then we're going to transition towards the end of where you are today and then where you're going so our audience can help you. So, brother... I don't want to waste time. People don't need to hear me. They need to hear you and the truth God gave you to help them grow. So, George, please share your story.
1: Great. Um, like David said, I do have bipolar disorder. Dealt with it you know, all of my adult life. And by the time I was in my late 20s, it had really wrecked everything. I was getting to the point where I was psychotic you know, as well as the typical mania depression, the ups and downs that go with bipolar disorder, I had started to hallucinate. I had lost, you know, relationships. I was in a job, things were not going well at all. And it came to the point where I was in Richmond, Virginia at the time. And about my 31st birthday, I filed for a gun license, a firearms license. And during that, because I was going to kill myself on my 31st birthday. And during that waiting period, I was committed to a psychiatric hospital, fortunately. Um, But after that, there were several hospitalizations in and out of hospitals, everything from medication to electroconvulsive therapy, another serious suicide attempt, um, where I actually did try to kill myself and fortunately, again, did not succeed. And several more hospitalizations. And then finally, I came back to Philadelphia where I grew up and got some good doctors, and they got the medication right, the drugs, the medicine, and things began to level off, began to be more stable, but there were still difficulties, and there were still a couple of hospitalizations ahead. So about 16 years ago, I started meditating, and the meditation brought to me the ability to actually manage episodes and even predict when they were coming and then intervene with things i had worked out with my doctor and my family uh, to be well so since i established the meditation practice now i still take the drugs won't stop that but since i s- established the meditation practice practice i've had no significant episodes of mania depression i have not had any hospitalizations and like they said I've been able to settle down, hold job, have a wife, have a family. You know all those things that I thought impossible for most of my life.
0: Yeah, and that statistically is something that shouldn't have happened. Correct. I mean, with the severity of what you had, they pretty much said, "Yeah, no family for you."
1: Yeah, yeah. Bipolar as severe as I had it, it, it typically lasts a lifetime and really wrecks things, and people end up. Most many people on short term or long term disability on Social Security disability for their whole lives and just pretty much stay on the couch and unfortunately have a terrible life. And so I I work today to try to help people in that situation.
0: Now some listeners know exactly what you're talking about. Maybe not to the same degree, but they struggle with depression, anxiety, even bipolar. What describe for the audience members who don't really know firsthand what are these episodes like? Because I can only imagine with the severity you had it, how scary those moments must have been, but but walk us through what were those episodes like so people understand as we go through what you really, God's allowed you to be free from.
1: Yeah, I have bipolar disorder one, uh, which is typically tends towards mania or mixed episodes where you get a bit of mania and mania and, and depression. And what what will happen as I, or typically anyone goes manic, you lose impulse control, get really irresponsible with spending money, with sex, with drugs and alcohol, and make bad choices, get to the point where you can't function well socially. Yeah, I mean, you become obviously ill to people who are around you and just continue to make the bad choices that, you know, I believe that you have to take responsibility for those choices after they happen. However, while it's happening, while you're really in the grips of a manic episode, it, it you you can become out of control. And mine often mixed, they were mixed episodes, they brought in elements of depression. And that would add a real dark mood, impulse towards suicide, strange religiosity that, that we can talk about, because I know God's the real focus. But strange religiosity, everything from occult stuff that, you know, and, and it's just, it's a loss of reason, really a loss of reason that happens.
0: When were you, when did you start seeing the first signs of this? Like, did you know as a child, like something's not right? Or were you like, boom, at 15, it just clicked on? What, what happened back then? Childhood was ideal. Um, childhood, I mean, everything was great. Great family,
1: brother, sister. I mean, everything was well. Bipolar disorder typically comes on, like any affective disorder, mood anxiety, depression, usually comes on in late adolescence or early adulthood. When I first went to college, there were some signs. Started with some bad behavior, stopped going to class. However, then it stopped pretty quickly on its own. And that's good because I was in blue collar New Jersey. We didn't know about psychiatrists and things like that. So there was no help coming. Through my 20s, there's a condition called hypomania, which is a low-grade mania that actually very seductive. It makes you charismatic. It makes you fire your best. And unfortunately, a lot of people with bipolar disorder try to duplicate that hypomania and they'll turn to substances and bad behavior to do that. But that really, for me, fueled success through my 20s. I was a tremendous success in financial services, became VP of sales of a company before I was 30. But then maybe the stress of the job, whatever happened, things started to click and the psychosis began. And then I was really unable
0: to function. Okay, so and explain that the hype. I know I've personally not heard of hypomania. So is it a compensation you're doing consciously or is it something that kicks in instinctively? How does that work? It's something that kicks in. I mean, a, a mood disorder they,
1: they believe things like bipolar and depression have a genetic component, there's a predisposition to this. Something in life, some stress event, something happens that clicks. And the condition begins. And in hypomania, it's real low-grade mania. So you get an incredible drive for success. You get, I mean, like I said, real charismatic. A person who's hypomanic and holding it together is a great person to be around because they're dealing with their intelligence, they're fun, they're full of ideas, can be real creative in this state. Um, However, it's great until it's not. It'll typically turn into a mixed episode or mania, and then things go completely out of control. But it really is. It's a wonderful feeling, hypomania. And unfortunately, a lot of people with bipolar disorder try to maintain that condition or or get back into that condition with everything from from, you know, prescription drugs to drink.
0: So it's kind of what we call like being in the zone.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely being in the zone. And it's interesting because they they do some work that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially some tech entrepreneurs, have this predisposition to what's called cyclothymia, which is really low grade bipolar disorder where people can hold it together. But hypomania is a common feature of cyclothymia. And so there there's many examples of people who really do well and, and really produce that stay. In this level of low grade mania, but again, it's something that you just can't control. So it's 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 not risky because you can't really turn it on, even though people try to. But it's 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 an interesting state. It's really an interesting state.
0: Yeah, I've never personally heard of that. So this has been already. I know I'm learning a ton from you but already. That's just new knowledge that I've never had. Um, on that, you said something that I I agree with completely. I just want to make sure we frame it. A lot of people, especially in Christian circles, we have listeners from over 53 countries, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of uh, worldviews. But a lot of people tend to believe, especially from the Christian perspective, that you're born with gifts. But they don't want to (laughs) believe that you're also born with weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure we have a balance here. Um, I don't personally believe, and you can always disagree, do not feel like you have to agree with me, George, but I believe that you're born with strengths and weaknesses. But like you said earlier, we have choice and we have the complete ability to control our our fate, so to speak. God gives us free will. So I think myself and you and every listener, we definitely have things we're weaker towards. Like for you, this was a huge issue. For mm-hmm. someone else, they might have an ad- like be addicted to alcohol or drugs or alcohol is a drug. But we all have weaknesses. But like you did, you can overcome it. Yeah. You did it through... The meditation and the steps we're going to talk about you did it through a balanced medication approach with with qualified physicians, so uh, do you agree with that? disagree with that you think i that's do we're
1: We're born with strengths and weaknesses, but through our lives we're tested aren't we yep, and in those tests, it really comes down to our will, our free will, our choices about life, our choices about God, to um, intervene in any way we can now. I'm not saying we can will mental illness away. No, no. it's going to require medical treatment. It's going to require therapy support, something like meditation. But what we can will is the desire to do what it takes to take the medicine, to not quit taking the medicine, to live a reasonable life with good habits and good lifestyle, to help manage the mental illness and overcome it. So we have the combination of strengths and weaknesses that we're born with. And bipolar is a fascinating condition because it gives you strengths and it emphasizes weaknesses. Yeah. And as we're tested with that condition and with the weaknesses beginning to overcome the strengths, then our will can help us decide to intervene and work well with good support and good advice You know, to turn life around.
0: Yeah, 100%. I I agree with you completely. I just want to make sure that people listening aren't biased at one end of the spectrum for or against, because this is such an important topic. And there's people who, like you said, are mega successful. Mm -hmm. And there's people who are charismatic and dynamic. And I'm like, oh, I want to be like them. And behind closed doors, they struggle. And again, I, I always think of, um, Charles Spurgeon have you heard of Charles Spurgeon no I have not Charles Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers he's like one of the greatest preachers of all time that we know of right mm-hmm. and he struggled with depression like really bad and he writes about it in his books mm-hmm. um and a lot of people like it wasn't accepted so he'd talk about it obviously not that publicly but in his private writings he was very like transparent about it like I'm really struggling here. So all of us in every walk of life can struggle with depression. I've always had a low grade depression Mm -hmm. and then, or sadness. I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe you can help me, but then I had some trauma and man, it just lit me up where I really struggle now. So I'm, that's another reason I personally, am looking forward to this episode. I want to take these uh, steps and apply them in my life because everybody has a weakness and the fact that you overcame it, man, is just, I'm so proud of you. and so thankful for you. Thank and you. I'm looking forward to this. Um, before we even go further, you said how childhood was ideal, mm-hmm. it was trauma or abuse. You got to college, it started showing its head. For people listening and they're thinking maybe right now about themselves or maybe one of their loved ones, what are some signs of this manic depression or bipolar or you know, these different conditions to be looking for, or to say, hey, it might be sadness, or yeah, this might be enough where you need to seek some professional help just to get their evaluation before it progresses. What are some things they should be looking for? You can look for real change in interest. I, I was
1: real involved with extracurricular, you know, sp- school senate, writing for the school newspaper, and then all of a sudden that just all stopped. And I ended up hanging on the corner with some bad kids. So, You know, change in interest, change in energy level, um, starting to make some bad choices, something as simple as diet or as complicated and dangerous as drug use or alcohol use. You know, these things, little slips of behavior and little observable changes in behavior can signify the onset. It's not always that. I mean, there's all sorts of troubles that come with new responsibilities in late adolescence and early adulthood. People make bad choices and it's not always a mental illness. But if somebody is really loses interest in things they've been doing, uh, it's, it's worth talking to somebody about that. It's worth having a conversation and maybe even seeing a doctor.
0: Yeah. And again, to frame this too, like if you had a trauma in your life or if your parents went through a divorce and you're a teenager, then that could trigger this kind of behavior. But you're talking about where if things are consistently just seeming to go well, and then you have that sudden interest change, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, please continue, sh- continue with your story now. You got us, you're in college and this behavior is going on. Where do you go from there?
1: Well, th- go to work, uh, go to work. Actually, it was interesting when I had trouble in college, the first time I dropped out and then I went to work for an organization doing sales. And fortunately they had a tuition reimbursement program. So a couple of years later, I was able to go to college at night while working full time. And then, like I said, things just went very well for a few years. Moved up in the organization, had great success in business before the real change came and the real psychotic mania kicked in. But, you know, after those years of struggle, which which we can certainly talk about more, but what came later in life, I talked about getting the meds right, adding the meditation, finding God in all of that. I was brought up Catholic. I mean, religion was always important to me. And oddly enough, religiosity, the strange things became a really predominant in my experience with psychotic mania.
0: But I guess- Let's definitely talk about that too, because that's important. I have a friend Uh in high school, we wrestled together. He was always a little off and then something happened to him, traumatic. Lost it, and his world was completely warped with religiosity. And, like you and I know, and for the listeners, if you're listening, there's a huge and important difference between your relationship with Christ and religion. God is God and He loves us, but there's a thousand churches. So, we're not talking about church, we're not talking about a social gathering, we're talking about really a relationship with God here. And that's what George is saying is so important that changed his life. So, Keep going on that, George, if you don't mind, because there's so many different religious pitfalls we could fall into. But just talk about what you went through and how you got out. It had
1: roots in my childhood. I had a grandmother. And, And, you know, bipolar disorder having strong genetic components, we usually find people in the family who also have it. And my grandmother, she was nuts. She was crazy. And religion was her hobby. She used to go from church to church. She used to go for everything from... Hindu temples to devil worship, all sorts of different experiments because she, you know, she would maintain that I don't want to live my life as a devout Episcopalian and die and find out that I should have been following Buddha all along. So she tried everything. And I, as a child, went around with her. So I was exposed to all this. And sometimes it was fun. Sometimes it was horrifying. But so there was this foundation in searching that, when I got sick later and started to embody some of these different beliefs that I learned from all of them. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge. Well, not the devil worship, not at all there, but there's (laughs) a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge in different faith traditions. So it it was fortunate to learn all of this and be exposed on this. But with the psychotic mania, the depression kicking in, I sort of clutched on to the worst. Of these things.
0: Um, and on that topic, when you say she visited, did she show up for one Sunday or Tuesday night and left, or did she go for like a few weeks or months, then switched? It
1: varied. Sometimes she would just show up, and other times she would find something interesting and then uh, stay for a little while.
0: So you literally were absorbing not just like one little touch and go. I mean, you were absorbing most of the doctrine. Like by the time you left that church, you could figure out what they believed. And that carried with you for life. And you're having all these uh, fighting and battling beliefs in your head. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, there
1: was. And then another experience, it was actually a great one. I, I grew up Catholic and I was in the Catholic catechism classes. And when I was in sixth grade, we did an exchange student with a Jewish temple that was across the street. And I, for a couple of months, went to Hebrew school and a kid from the Jewish temple came over and went to the Catholic school for a few weeks. And it was sort of like we were sent to each other's camp to come back and report on what was going on
0: over there. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Instead (laughs) of going overseas abroad, you did it across the street. Right, did it across the street. (laughs) So what were the things that this is all going on and you're absorbing everything literally from Catholicism, Christianity, Hinduism, Satan worship, How did this manifest itself in your life when the, when the bipolar kicked in?
1: Well, it's interesting because as it kicked in and, and this is, this is one of those things that, you know, maybe you're just given an opportunity because as it kicked in and there was a lot of religiosity, um, I was drawn towards contemplative practices and I envisioned myself being a monk and I was going to throw it all away and go to a monastery And it was not a reasonable choice, but I started to visit monasteries and I started to meditate everything from Benedictine monasteries to Zen monasteries. And so the meditation that I started to do was born of this odd religiosity and and this experience with mental illness. However, I stuck with it and it began to work. And then all of the dangerous things, all of the unreasonable beliefs fell away But I stuck with the meditation that, you know, had it not been for that dangerous, psychotic religiosity, I may have never come to. So even in the midst of all that turmoil, the gift came to practice meditation in ancient traditions and then from there followed wellness.
0: Yeah. And the Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God. Mm -hmm. Let me do this. I want to ask you a question. Um, And to our listeners too, when George and I are talking about meditation, he's meditating through the Bible and Psalms, and he's going to describe that. Probably should have said that at the beginning of the episode, so I'll put that in when I make the intro. Mm -hmm. Um, I know several people over the course of my life who've struggled in this area, but that one uh, young man I was telling you about earlier from high school who was 15 and then It kind of blew up for him as his world just shattered. He had the same desire. They found him in Mexico. He ran away. He went to a monastery, and they found him just sitting there praying over and over again in the rain. What compelled you? Do you remember at that point? Like I know you said that was your interest, and that's where you went, and ultimately ended up helping you. But I've heard so many people have that same story where there's some kind of draw with it To religion. So I'm thinking, is it our innate desire that we know every human knows in their heart there's a God and it's you trying to seek and find him? Or was there something else going through your head at that point? Like, do you remember that far back? I do. I do. Um, People
1: with severe mental illness tend to skew intelligent and creative and curious. And however, you know there's something wrong with you. And you know that life has become dysfunctional. So you start searching for answers. Nothing promises better answers than faith traditions. So it's very common to be drawn toward a faith tradition and search there for answers that can help you with the loss of control and the sense that things are happening to you that you just don't understand and can't seem to stop. So I think that's why many of us with mental illness find ourselves searching, just searching because we're different from everybody else. There's things our minds are doing that we know are disabling, but we can't stop. So the search for answers, I think, is very typical of people with experience such a mind, such as your friend.
0: Yeah, I'm tracking with you The. Even, I mean, even the Bible talks about how with much wisdom and much knowledge, there's much pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the most intelligent people I know, their brains never stop working. It's almost a curse. It's like a blessing and a curse at the same time. When you were younger and healthy, did your mind constantly run or was it pretty balanced or you always been on high octane? I I was really curious through my
1: whole life. I mean, when all the kids were out playing kickball, I'd be in reading books and looking for knowledge. So I think it followed that. It followed that. But it's interesting talking about Bible and other ancient faith traditions. There's one in Buddhism that said, great doubt, great knowledge, little doubt, little knowledge, no doubt, no knowledge. And so, I mean, we can bring that into our lives because, I mean, sometimes it's healthy to question the things you're sure of because you often find you come out with answers that make you even more sure and secure in your faith. So, I mean, so the doubt was painful. The doubt caused me a lot of darkness, but I think the doubt strengthened faith in the long run.
0: Yeah, you have to know what you believe and why. We can't just take, our, take things for granted. Oh yeah, I believe in God because people said so. You have to have it real in your heart. Yeah, man. So I applaud you for your journey because that's what we need to do. It's got to be real. So you're going through this. You're successful. Everything starts going crazy. And like you said, you act now, did you get uh, in Florida? It's called Baker acted when you were going to commit suicide that time. Did you get hospitalized voluntarily or mandatory? Uh, It it was actually voluntary. Um, I I worked, the,
1: the financial services company I worked for was an insurance company. We did special risk insurance, everything from travel insurance to credit card coverage, all sorts of different types of insurance. However, this was before HIPAA the health insurance privacy laws. So I knew that if I went to a psychiatrist, that would be reported back to my HR department and my career would be over because of a terrible stigma. So when these symptoms started to appear, I went to a neurologist instead, because there's often physical symptoms that come along with a mental illness. So he was treating what he thought was fibromyalgia or irritable bowel syndrome or some neurological difficulty as Ibe ten- continued to get more and more psychotic. He, at some point, said, look, I'm out of my league. This is out of my specialty. I don't understand. I want you to go into this hospital. So I planned on it, but I went home and I decided it was a better idea to go out to dinner and drink a lot of wine. Um, uh, when I when I came back, this like the this neurologist had actually had police check on me because he heard I hadn't gone into the hospital, so I wasn't actually Baker acted, although I could have been. That the preparation was there, but I had enough wherewithal to say, okay, things things are challenging here, and I went into hospital voluntarily.
0: Yeah, and act- you said something that I, if you're again for the listeners, mm-hmm. st- oh, man, I know like there's two people right now that I know that have mental illness. And I talk to them all the time. Drugs and alcohol are so bad to begin with. You know, anything out of moderation, alcohol, drugs, the same thing. But anything that's could be potentially bad for someone who's normal, if you have a mental illness, it's like gasoline on a fire. Absolutely. Yeah, talk about that for a second. Cause I don't think people really grasp that or want to grasp that. Cause the people I know right now currently. They have serious issues with balance and with, you know, like you said, self control and keeping that reasonable decision making. And then they're pounding down alcohol and drugs and they're just becoming a nut. So, talk about the difference between already struggling with bipolar and then adding in drugs and alcohol. Yeah, there's so much
1: pain involved with mental illness, and often emotional pain can be more severe than physical pain. So a few things start to happen. People try to treat the pain, try to make the pain go away. And, you know, frankly, a lot of substances do that. They do that for a little while. They turn out to be much, a lot of bad in the long run, but for a little while it feels good and it can make some of the symptoms go away. So people will get into substances to help manage the symptoms of their mental illness or in, the case, in, 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 in my case, even, to try to hold that hypomania and hold that wonderful feeling, I, I started for a time taking meth because it could get me to that point. Now, granted, you always crash. It's always a disaster later. But there is a time where you're either helping moderate the symptoms or helping perpetuate the best of the symptoms. And the sad thing is substances work for a little while in doing that. So a lot of people with mental illness will turn to drugs or drink to either treat their illness or to just feel the best
0: of it. Yeah, the self-medication for the short term, but long term, doesn't that cause a greater deterioration? Absolutely. I mean, alcohol, for instance, is a central
1: nervous system depressant. So a lot of people will drink when they're depressed because at that moment, it makes them feel good. But over time, it's affecting the nervous system, slowing it down, affecting serotonin levels in the brain that will lead to depression. So it's a central nervous system depressant that will get you over consistent use. But the cruel thing is during that use, at least early on, it feels good. So you're getting one effect out of it while it's causing long-term damage.
0: This is awesome. Thanks, George, because we're sitting here talking to you, and you probably have more knowledge in your head by overcoming this personally than a medical doctor has. So, (laughs) thanks for being here today. Um, And to the listeners, be writing down your questions. I mean, some of you are driving, some of you are running, some of you are working out, but uh, be not just putting mental notes. Try to jot down some notes here so you remember these questions and you can write George and get some questions answered and help. but now let's get to the part. I mean, unless we I don't want to skip anything that you deem important cuz your story is your story. But if there's nothing else you want to add, let's get to the point where you started figuring out the steps to healing.
1: Yeah, let me let me make one more point because it oh, ties absolutely. in with the talk about substance abuse. The odd thing is that so many people with mental illness will turn to substances to feel better. And yet When they're being successfully treated with a prescription medication for their mental illness, so many people will stop taking it when they do feel better and find themselves right back into the well of mental illness that the medicine helped them get out of. Um, With bipolar disorder, it has an 85% treatment effective ratio. That is better than heart disease, it's better than diabetes. However, 65% of the people that have bipolar disorder who are treated do not take their medication the way it's prescribed. So they end up going back into difficult symptoms, even though if they stuck with the medication, it would help them. So you've got this odd situation where people will turn to illegal substances to feel better. And yet many of them, when they're taking a prescription medicine, that makes them feel better, they'll stop taking it. And the reasons that there's stigma, there's cost, there's all sorts of reasons why people do that. But I always found that strange that we'll turn to substances to get better. But often when we are better, we'll stop taking the medicine that has helped us get to that point. And yeah. I've, I've been there too. I've done it. I've done it. I had a summer where everything was fine. But I was, I was really worried by the fact that every morning and every night, you look in your palm and there's pills there, and you need these pills for yourself to be well. It's not your pancreas. It's not your heart. It's like your very self, and I couldn't deal with that for a while. So I stopped taking the medicine, ended up a few months later crushing an anxiety pill at bars, snorting it, take, chasing it with tequila, and that resulted in a suicide attempt where I almost lost my life. Not an uncommon experience for people with severe mental illness.
0: Yeah, No, and I, earlier, I, I, if you heard me laugh, I literally just wrote down, I was gonna ask you why would people stop their meds? Is it because they live with that stigma in the back of their head, they don't wanna do it? Is it self-destruction? Is it a false sense of confidence, like I'm okay now? And then you immediately answered it. So if I was laughing, don't think I was insensitive. <laughs> I was just, I literally wrote the question and you answered it, so thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it is true, even with mental illness, like we discussed earlier, they might've had the weakness, but they, we might've also had trauma in our past and we have the self-destructive behavior. Like I don't deserve to be well, or I'm horrible. And this is, you know, this is my fate. It's a, it's lies that saying puts in our head, it but is. that kind of stigma and self-destructive behavior, if you were to put your money on what the most common reason people stop meds, what would you say that is?
1: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think for, it, it's probably two, that cost is a big factor, I mean, typically, if you have a mental illness, you end up without a job. You don't have the private health care insurance. Um, insurance, historically, has been difficult to come by to pay for the medicine, and the medicines are expensive. So, cost is one factor. The other factor is this stigma. If I have a mission in life, David, it's to normalize mental illness. I mean, we all feel this. We all, while we're not all mentally ill, everybody has had experiences of anxiety or depression. So I want, I want to help people. And it's been an interesting year because with the coronavirus pandemic and the economic pain and the health pain and the, and the shutdown, a lot of people have been feeling anxiety and have been feeling things that are uncomfortable for them that they don't know quite how to deal with. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us to normalize mental illness let everybody know that hey anybody can feel this way it's not a character flaw it's not a bad choice they've made because it's happening to everybody this year and you know if we can just accept that mental illness happens and that it can be helped then maybe maybe we can chip away at the stigma and make people who have mental illness feel more open to being honest about it and getting treatment
0: Absolutely. And at this point, we're going to take a short break. And for the listeners, we're going to have an ad that's going to be someone who can help you. And as I'm recording this, I have no idea who that's going to be. And we're not just going to plug in a sponsor to make money. I'm going to work with George to try to find a resource for you that if you need help, check out this sponsor or check out this this organization because I feel just very much so right now. We're going to talk about it. And after this break, George is going to give you the practical steps that you can use and communicate with him to get well. So I'm super looking forward to this, but let's take a short break, hear from the sponsor, and we'll be right back with George Hoffman. Hello, friends. This is David Pasquale with the Remarkable People podcast, and I hope you're sincerely enjoying this episode with our friend, George Hoffman. Not only does George have an amazing story, but what you're about to hear gets even better. And it transitions into how we can now take these techniques ourselves, run with them. And then at the end, you can check the show notes for a link to a guided meditation session to help you start your journey. But we all need help. And a lot of times when we're dealing with mental illness, We need help with licensed professionals. That's why I'm going to refer you today back to our friend Rob Jackson. You've heard about Rob Jackson in episode, I believe it was 14, the Kirsten Samuel story in season one, then again in season two with David and Kirsten Samuel, and then even Rob Jackson in his own episode from a few weeks ago. Rob is an amazing counselor that God uses to reach into the heart of the issue of what's going on in your life and then guide you step by step out of the darkness and into the light. So while Rob and the episodes we've done has been mainly about sexual addiction, he's amazing at working with people to find the balance, the biblical and godly balance between what you need medically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and I can tell you that from firsthand experience. Over the last couple, few weeks, I've been working with Rob, um, I think three or four months now, and we've not only developed a friendship, but a professional relationship, and he's been helping me personally overcome things I've been struggling with for years, and it's crazy and wonderful how God worked it out, even with George. Because over and over again, I've had in the back of my mind, do I have mental illness? And is there something that's caused this lifelong kind of struggle with depression for me personally? And working with Rob Jackson, he's helped me see the difference between the spiritual side, the physical side, the emotional side, and even that, hey, man, I think your serotonin levels are low. Go see a doctor. I see a doctor. they agree. We did some blood tests. Boom. I get on an antidepressant for the first time in my life. I'm 43 and I've only been on it for three weeks now and it's been a game changer. So listen, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you how to do it. But what I am telling you is from my own personal experience, God has used George and Rob and so many of my guests, the guests in my life But right now, if you're listening, don't give up hope. Don't think it's just for other people. It's for you too. So call up Rob Jackson. Call up George Hoffman. Call me if I can help you, at least point you in the right direction. And let's keep moving forward with joy and peace. Also, mentioned earlier, going to mention it now, going to mention it again. If you're out there and you need a Bible, legitimately need a Bible, call me up. Shoot me an email. We're going to get you a Bible. I'm a Gideon. A Gideon's of the people since 1898 have been spreading the gospel and handing out Bibles to the world. If you go to a hotel, motel, military base, school, university, and you slide the drawer open and there's a Bible, that's probably placed there by the Gideons. If you are out at a fair, if you're out at a campground, if you're out at the big social gathering, there's people handing out Bibles, boom, probably the Gideon's. So listen, if you are here right now and hear my voice as a Christian and you love God and you love the Bible and you love people, donate to the Gideons. If you are someone who needs a Bible, call me, let me know. We'll get you a Bible with the money people donated for the Gideons. It's all about God and he loves you. It's all about you. So this is Dave Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. Reach out to George, reach out to Rob, reach out to myself. Grab a Gideon Bible, support Gideon Bibles, and let's get back to the episode. All right, to the listeners, at this point, I'm super excited. Uh, George is going to talk to us about his steps to success. So, George, you're going through so much. The world's spinning. You're having these moments of realization where you realize you're unwell. Then you have the other moments of manic highs and lows, and you know you're just engaged in the moment. How do you navigate from suicidal tendencies and being institutionalized to talking to me today on the podcast with a wife and a kid and life's going well. You just wrote a book and had your release. Talk to us about how you did it. Well, the, the
1: three steps. The first was to decide to take the medical treatment that was working to consistently take the medicine and see the doctor and commit to that. The second was to change the language. You'll hear all the time people say, he has bipolar. No, he is bipolar or I am depressed. Language is very important. And I think that verb in there, changing that verb made all the difference for me because I changed to be, to, to have. So instead of saying, I am bipolar, I started to say, I have bipolar disorder. And I insist on everybody saying that. It's not, she is mentally ill, but she has a mental illness. Because positioning it this way separated it from my core sense of self and enabled me to act to lose it. Because if it's something you have, you can dismiss it and separate from it. Whereas if it's something you are, It's just part of you and you can never pull away from it. So the language change.
0: Yes. And and, give give a pause there. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Because what you just said, George, is every aspect of life. But I actually want to just shut up and think about what George just said. I have blank versus I am. I am is so permanent sounding and you're lying to yourself and you're allowing that in your head. But what George says, I have bipolar which means you can not have bipolar and you can get rid of it. So that mental setup is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, George. And, and it's in the Bible. I mean, when, when Yahweh, God's name is I
1: am. Yep. But that's it. I am. Because that's what we have. We have ourself. We have God. We have I am. As soon as you attach an object to that, you change your relationship and you limit yourself. So if I say I am mentally ill, well that's it. That that's what I've got. Whereas if you change that, you you accept the I am for the foundation of faith and then introduce other things in your life, especially illnesses as I have this, then you can maintain your core, you can maintain your your faith and you can position yourself and begin to approach challenges in a in a healthier way.
0: Yeah, I love that because Man, it's so true. And you ever did you ever read, I think it's in Isaiah, where Satan fell? And God is the great I am. That's it, Mm -hmm. man. He is I am, just like you said. But Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will. You know, all that blind, sinful ambition. Mm -hmm. So the words we use are so important. Thank you, George, for talking about this. Because a lot of people just ah, flip past it or that's just a bunch of, you know, whatever. But as a man thinketh, so is he. That's what the Mm -hmm. Bible talks about. And what George is saying is dead on. Reframe. Don't lie. Don't (laughs) just say, I am Superman. I can fly. That's going to turn bad. But if you can reframe it to I have and know you're getting to freedom and believe that truth, you're on your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So step one, you're committed.
1: Step one, I'm committed. The third step. The oh. Step yeah, I'm um, I'm committed to following the treatment that works. Yep. Step two, I'm no longer defining myself as mentally ill, but I'm seeing it as something I have that I can either get rid of or manage, and live a healthy life. Step three, meditation became the tool to help me achieve that because in meditation. And we'll talk about methods because it's a worldwide and it's an ancient tradition. Every faith tradition has meditative practices built Mm -hmm. into the original faith tradition. And unfortunately, we've gotten away from that in many traditions lately. But the meditation enabled me to notice thoughts I'm having about myself and my world, see and realize where these thoughts are either accurate or inaccurate. And simple things like just manage stress and, and decide to live a healthier, more centered life. So meditation was the third thing that dropped in there that has really resulted in wellness and the ability to have a successful life.
0: For our audience, as soon as we had the stigma in that, I mean, there's so much bias with meditation. Mm-hmm. So many good things in life that God intended to be pure, Satan takes way out of whack and pollutes and makes them dirty. But meditation, you know, as soon as the average American hears meditation, they picture somebody, hum, hum, you know, sitting right. there with their legs crossed. But that's mm-hmm. not what you're talking about. So go ahead and start talking about what is meditation to you? Yeah, meditation to me, it's, it's simply focused attention. It's focused attention.
1: We do, just like you said, we have misperceptions about meditation in our culture, especially in Christian culture today. And it's the way it's been taught. There is a mindfulness industry out there. Because everybody's talking about meditation, and everybody's selling apps, and we're finding most of what's being taught in the West today has Eastern foundations. And I've studied it. I've, I've been through with some of the great meditation teachers in North America, and to a man or a woman, they all hearken to the East. They're bringing in Buddhist methods, they're bringing in Eastern philosophy and thought, and they're presenting that as the way we've lost the fact, Christians, we've lost the fact that our tradition is full of meditative practices. We see it as something that they do. It's Eastern. It's not Christian. However, we lose the fact that our tradition, like mindfulness, everybody throws around the word mindfulness. The first appearance of mindfulness in the English language did not come from some Buddhist teacher. The first appearance of mindfulness in the English language is in the Wycliffe Bible in the 14th century. It's a tradition that's foundational in Christian prayer and in a Christian's relationship with God that unfortunately we've lost. We've pulled away from that today because it's been completely presented as an Eastern practice and we as Christians feel that. That's not for me. That's not the belief I want to go towards. So I'm not going to meditate at all.
0: And to the listeners, that's huge because, you know, the old saying, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's what we did. We took a good practice that is biblically based, centering ourselves, being mindful of God. Jesus would take time to pray and to be alone with God. And he would encourage the disciples to do that. And like you saw what John Whitecliffe, He's one of the you know, framers of a lot of what we believe today. And then because of the mysticism and the new age movement, Christian said, well, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, kind of like even the Holy Spirit. You get the mm-hmm. Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously the Holy Spirit's important. Jesus said himself, the great comforter will come after me. He's even greater than I. But today in most Christian circles, how often do you hear about the Holy Spirit? It's either one extreme, oh, he's there, but we don't talk about him. Or the other, where people are jumping on the ground, barking like dogs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we need things in balance. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. So you committed, you followed the program, you changed your language, you started research and meditation. What did your research teach you?
1: Well, the the research taught me well. well There's all sorts of medical research. There's empirical peer-reviewed stuff that says that this works in terms of stress management and general wellness. And so I investigated it that way. And also, you know, from, from faith. I mean, when Jesus had his moment of greatest doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He meditated. It's right there. Meditation is simply about focused attention, it's a moment of solitude, a moment of silence. And when else is God going to speak to you? But in a moment like that, to break away from the busy of busyness of life and to just focus. it That's when you're going to be most open to God speaking to you. And that's when you're going to be most open to finding compassion and love for others who are in our lives and in our society just by meditating. Yeah. So today you'll find that. Again, when you look for meditation instruction, you'll find Eastern influence, you'll find Buddhist influence, and that may turn a lot of people off. I mean, I've studied Zen a lot, and there's a lot of things to learn there. But in the Christian tradition, the earliest Christian church, the Desert Fathers, they meditated. The first couple hundred years of Christianity, it was a meditative practice, and people meditated on the word, and they stayed silent. I mean, the Apostles' Creed didn't come about until in the 300s. So it was a meditative practice early on. And then throughout history, we've had meditative practices as well, which I began with. And I can go into them if you'd like me to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, to you and the listeners, if you hear me delay, it's because I'm trying to click my mic back off mute. So <laughs> don't think I'm not interested. <clears throat> I'm on the edge of my seat here. So, okay. Um, yeah, please do, George. Because again. That focus and that quiet time, especially now, we're recording this and it'll be released sometime this summer, and COVID is all over the world. We don't know what's real and what's fake with it. I mean, there's so much on both sides, but people are stressing out. But one thing, and again, you can agree or disagree, I think COVID's been good for us in so many ways as a world. Because it shows us, we were forced to slow down. I don't know about you, but for most people, you're forced to slow down. And I go through my neighborhood and it's awesome. We're meeting our neighbors. There's people walking around. People aren't getting up at 5 a.m. and working till midnight. I think in a lot of ways, this slowdown has really helped people. And it's teaching them there's more to life than just working all the time and being on that treadmill of life to get to the end where you're like, I just missed the whole journey. So when George keeps talking about taking that time to meditate, whether it's slower in the COVID or whether you get back to this, sadly, this too fast paced life of busyness, which most business doesn't even matter. George is about to teach us his steps to meditate. So you can have that peace and solitude and recenter yourself with Christ. So please, please teach us, George. Sure, the basics of meditation, as I said, it's focused attention.
1: You are taking your full attention and you're focusing on some words or object. The obvious one that comes to a Christian is prayer. Prayer is a meditation, it's a full focus on either words that are given to us in the Bible or on things that we want for others and things that we hope we need help with for ourselves. So, prayer is an entire focus on ourself and our relationship with God. There are many other methods. There's Lectio Divina, which comes in the Christian tradition, which is wonderful. You take a passage from the Bible at random, read a short piece of it, read it over, read again, until something in that passage really grabs you and holds on. And then you just sit silent and contemplate that line of Scripture. And listen. Listen for what comes to you about that line of scripture and about your life. The one that I did early on is um, in the Benedictine tradition, which were monasteries that go back into the 600s and earlier in Christian Europe, the Psalms. Became foundational to my meditation practice in the divine office They call it at different times of day in a benedictine monastery They read a certain cycle of psalms and over a two-week period you have read all of the psalms Now of course none of us have time to follow this rule And none of us have times to get through all the psalms meditatively in two weeks because you have to do it several times a day But we can do the practice And it's very simple. You have the Bible, you sit in silence because silence has to be a big part of meditation because that's when things are going to speak to you and that's when you're going to discover things about yourself. But during this period of silence, you'll read a Psalm and you'll meditate on the Psalm. And the Psalms are fascinating, fascinating pieces of the Bible because you've got everything from absolute love to sheer violence. It's all in the Psalms, but you meditate on the Psalms and see what they personally mean to you and then go back into silence. Focus on your breath, focus in a centered way, and just listen for what comes to you and notice the things happening within you and around you and what you can learn about yourself and your place in the world and your place in faith.
0: Yeah, and for those of you not familiar with the Bible or the Psalms, the Bible is what a Christian, what I perceive as God's Word, 100% true. Two-thirds of it's the Old Testament. One-third of it's the New Testament. And the difference between Old and New is before Christ is the Old Testament. After Christ is the New Testament. But the book of Psalms, George, and you and I talked about this in our phone calls, I never understood the book of Psalms. It's poetic, it's mm-hmm. beautiful, but I'm an engineering, you know, that part of my brain is just very structured. But once I hit a low in life and had major trauma, the Psalms just opened up to me and I got it. And I'm sure I can get a lot more, but what I'm seeing is it started making sense. So when George was saying <clears throat> there's love in psalms and there's war in psalms and There's depression in Psalms and there's pain in Psalms, especially for those of you struggling, for those of us struggling, the Psalms just really connect. So even if you've tried to read Psalms before, read it again. And I think if you go back to the episode with uh, Jill Johnson, she's talking about grief. That's exactly how she dealt with it through the Psalms. So there's something special about the Psalms. So I'm really, really thankful you're sharing this, George. It just keeps reinforcing you know, there's something special about that book specifically in the Bible.
1: Yeah. It's special because, and and it, it, a lot, it has to do with what it does to us in our experience of God, because we can all get on board with the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want one of the Psalms or walk through the shadow of the valley of death. I mean, these things we can resonate with us, but you get to some of them and they just seem so challenging. I mean, Psalm 103, David asks for God to crush the skulls of his enemy's children. I mean, how do you bring this into <laughs> your life? And you know what? When the Psalms were written, they probably meant that. They probably meant that. But to yeah. us today, and C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and had a lot of theology books in the 20th century, he wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms that really changed me because it took these Psalms. It's half of them. Half of them are, seem hateful. But what we can learn as we read them is that the enemies that we cease to vanquish are within. You know, no one is praying to have violence against other people, but we are praying to confront the doubt, the enemies within ourselves and have God give us a way, give us a message, give us the quietude to think about that in ourselves, the enemies that rise up from within and then approach that in a way, you know, that we can improve ourselves and feel better about the world we live in.
0: Yeah, and for the listener, if you're not familiar, most of the Psalms, like George was saying, were written by David. And David's got an amazing story throughout the Bible. But out of 150 chapters in the book of Psalms, David wrote most of them. And one thing that's awesome about David is he's real. If you think you're a bad person and you're not good enough, read the Bible. <laughs> Cause David is a man. Yeah, after you've dogs. got nothing on David, right? <laughs> yeah, David is a wild man <laughs> and a beast in some areas. And he he did he had a horrible upbringing with his relationship with his father. He became a horrible father. So you hear the stories of David and Goliath, and you know the 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 taking out the giant with a slingshot, and you hear some of the victory stories. But David had some terrible things he did. I mean, adultery, murder. And when, when George is talking about him wanting to crush the skulls of his enemies, come on, let's be real. Haven't we all at some time been so hurt and so angry, we would have prayed that same prayer, maybe in different words. So the Psalms is a real book of real emotion. And um, I'm sure you'll find something to connect with in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay, so you're taking the Psalms, you're reading some. And then you're thinking about it. Like, what is this really saying? That you're meditating on it. You're thinking through it. And then you're listening to hear what God replies. Not like audible voices, but where is it leading you in your mind? Or what do you need to deal with in life? So continue there.
1: Well, it, it, it helped me develop my belief um, in God, in the ability to get well. And it helped to anchor me because I think with meditation, the discipline of doing it is as important as any me- benefit you get out of it by the act of doing it. I think the Psalms, the cycle of the Psalms, sitting down to read the Psalms, besides giving us introspection and in faith, it helps us introduce some discipline into our lives. With meditation, you know, doing it every day at a certain time and having a serious practice is a very disciplined event. Dealing with bipolar disorder, I was leading a very undisciplined life. So this step toward discipline of practice, doing something regular, reflecting at a certain time every day, really helped. It introduced discipline in my life, and then I was able to move that discipline out to other parts of my life, like taking the meds, not taking the substances, not getting involved, you know, not cheating on a relationship, you know, all those things that require a really disciplined sense of will to deal with when your mind is telling you to do these things. So that was key.
0: Yeah. And any kind of discipline in a schedule and that kind of balance, that's every area.
1: It's And and it's a shame because just like meditation has gotten a bad word Mm -hmm. for some people here in the United States, discipline for some people is seen as a negative thing. Discipline is not, especially self-discipline. It's liberating. It helps you get to your best potential because it gives you focus and it gives you, you know, stick-to-itiveness to help to face challenges and overcome challenges.
0: Yeah. And you're so dead on, George. I'm loving this. conversations about, I'm going to bring out the B word, budget. People hate budgeting, Mm -hmm. but that's the most beautiful thing because you say, these are where the expenses are. This is where the funds are going to go. And now I can live without guilt and have fun with the rest. You've budgeted, but just like you budget, you know, we can make more money, but we can't make more time. Right. So why would you, and for us as a listeners, think about this. Why would we budget our money, which we can make more of, but we don't budget our time, which we can never get back? It's the most valuable resource we have. We have God and we have the time he's given us. This life is on average 70 to 80 years, and then it's eternity. So where are we going to spend that eternity? That's what these years are for. Absolutely. And to glorify God. So what George is saying, listen, commit get that balance program change your language meditate and he's gonna go deeper into that but get a disciplined schedule wake up at the same time work out at the same time eat at the same time do these things and it doesn't bring bondage it brings freedom you have that like i mean how do you just i can say that's how i describe it right mm-hmm. but that like relaxation of knowing that consistent schedule that makes me feel really good how, I don't know how to share that relief I feel, but I love, I never perform at a higher level than when I have a rigid schedule and I'll break mine down to 15 minute increments. Mm -hmm. So how do you explain that to someone, the freedom it brings? I think that breath
1: you took, I think that breath you took explains it all because, you know, as I'll talk about the progress of meditation as the Psalms continue to be important, but I move more and more into silence and we'll talk about why, but in silence, Focusing on the breath in meditation trains you to have that ability to just, you know, come back to one breath when either you're segmenting your day or your day becomes overwhelming or there's some challenge you face that you just can't feel like you deal with. Just come to that one breath, center, sit, and then be able to respond skillfully instead of just have a reaction where... You fly off and maybe do things that you later regret. It's a centering moment. And with meditation, we're training ourselves to have that centering moment. And some people will say that's a moment with God. And some people will say that's just a pause in your day. But the beauty of meditation is the simple practice works, you know, for all of these different goals and all of these different outcomes. So it can work. It can work for anyone. It can work for anyone.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. All right, so we're going to, George and I spoke, we're going to put a link in the show notes. You can go ahead and link to it, or we may even put a segment at the end of this podcast where it'll roll over right into it. George is going to walk us through a meditation example of how he does it. So before we get ahead of ourselves, though, and to get to that point, continue with describing meditation and how you actually practically do it. Yeah, um,
1: as, as I said, I, I, and I think everyone must bring a lot of silence into their meditation. Reading the Psalms can open you up and prepare you, but the silence is when God or the deepest recesses of your mind are going to speak to you, and the silence is when you're going to start noticing things that happen in and around you. And then that's where be- meditation can become very practical. Some people will say they use meditation for enlightenment. Some people will say they use it for a directive experience of God. In my life, it's become more immediate and more practical because I noticed in the moments of silence and the silence, it, it's difficult. You sit and you focus on your breath and you feel the breathing. And as thoughts come up in your mind, you just let them go. Don't start a conversation with yourself. Don't complete the thoughts. Just let the thoughts go and then return to the breath. And in this silence, you really notice things. You notice feelings in your body. You notice thoughts and emotions you're having. And I discovered that before an episode of depression or mania, certain changes would take place in my body, even though we talk mental illness Most episodes of mental illness start with some physical disturbances, be it pain in the body or a buzzing feeling or lethargy. They start with some physical symptoms and all too often we miss them entirely and rush right into a difficult episode that we can't get out of. But by meditating, by having this silence, focusing on the breath, taking the Psalms to set me up and come out of the meditation to keep me in touch with the message, But having that period of silence enables me to notice the changes that occur within me. I can now, and I teach others to get to the point where they can actually predict when an episode of anxiety or depression is beginning, and then you can intervene. Intervene with a medicine you have, doctor, you know, support from your family, better sleep, more exercise, you know, some intervention that will keep that episode from getting serious. So there's the great faith tradition of meditation, which brought me into it. And I still practice, but there's the very practical method, which is what I choose to teach and write about, because, you know, this stuff can help you confront and understand and overcome challenges in your life. And so that's where I put the bulk of my work in the, that the practical aspects of meditation. Because, I mean, the ability for somebody with a mental illness, whether it's anxiety or mania, to be able to feel an episode coming, predict that it's going to be there, and then intervene to not have that episode is amazing. And then, if one is in an episode, meditation can bring the silence and the stillness and the focus back to best managing the episode and not really screwing up.
0: Yeah. And the silence is so important because if you don't listen, you won't, if you don't have the silence, you won't be able to hear things coming. It's kind of like self defense. If you're walking somewhere, you have headphones in and you're blaring at night, you're not going to hear people running up to jump you. You're going to get jumped because you're not listening. And even though it's not physical, when our thoughts are bombarding us and we're not listening, we're drowning it out with all the cares of the world or the busyness we have, all these attacking forces are still coming at us, right, George? But we're not listening, so we're not dealing with them. So, if I hear somebody coming behind me, I'm going to turn around and punch them in the face. Sorry, Mm -hmm. but that's what I do, right? I've done it before, sadly, because I had to, but they were going to jump me. But the thing is, with those thoughts, we need to confront them head on, knock it out and get rid of it. And that's what George is telling you to do that's 100% true. You need to listen. You need to take those thoughts. Like, How does the Bible phrase it? It says to take things captive. Taking captive. It uses that phrase. And it talks about how taking those thoughts captive and renewing our mind. And we do that through the Bible, God's word. And um, I I want you to keep going. I I think my mind is working overtime right now and I'm enjoying this very much. So forgive me if I keep interrupting, but if you're listening to us and you don't have a Bible, write me, we'll get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, it's yours. Just let me know. And then if you're listening and you want to support this, there's a page on our website, davidpassalone. forward slash RPP Remarkable People Podcast. You can go ahead and donate, and that'll go right to Bibles. Just put a note. Hundred percent of what you donate goes right to Bibles. And if nobody donates, that's okay. I'll still fur away. I'll pay for it. We'll get you Bibles. So we want you to get well, George. What he's saying is so true. I can't help but think and comment on it. But just realize if our mind's always running. And we're always moving. How can you ever get that peace and reconcile things? Mm -hmm. So that's
1: that's beautiful work you do with Bibles. I mean, thank you for that. And um, you know, with with, with meditation, I mean, with with my emphasis on silence, I think there's two terrible things that have happened with meditation in the last 20 years. Two terrible things. One is it's been sold as something that's all calm and spacey and happy and going to make you, you know, be centered and feel good. Yeah, burn some incense. Yeah, it's, it's not that way at all. Meditation helps you notice exactly what is happening in your experience right now. And that's not always good. Just as the Psalms can be really uncomfortable to read some of them, meditation a session can be really uncomfortable if you're being presented with challenges or physical pain or bad thoughts so it's just to notice these to notice these it's not always going to be relaxing so a lot of people who start meditation because it's been promised to be this wonderful relaxing experience have encounters with those difficulties and quit they think they're not doing it right when in fact if you're sitting noticing things you are doing it the other tragedy with me- with meditation is that, you know, everybody thinks you've got to have an app or a guide or something to sit with, Headspace or something like that that guides you through the meditation and constantly talks at you, giving you images, things tells you what to do. You lose the benefit of silence entirely. So a guide can help and there are some tremendous Christian meditation apps that can help establish your practice, learn how to do it, sit there with the guide for a while. But eventually, you have to remove yourself from the guide and sit with silence. Sit with silence to truly notice what's happening in your world. Because if it's always a guide, they're not necessarily going to take you places you need to go, and they're going to interrupt the silence that is so valuable to meditation practice, and to, I think to being able to develop for a relationship with God as well.
0: Yeah. And so you're sitting there and you're in the silence and you're listening. That's how you're predicting what's coming. Now, how do you handle it? That
1: I I mean, well, the good thing about the meditation is besides helping you predict, it can help you, you know, keep centered make good decisions, and realize that most, many, many of the thoughts we have, especially thoughts about ourselves, are lies the mind gives us. When it tells us we're terrible and tells us we're constantly making mistakes and all, you know, maybe we are, but most of the time, it's just this tape we have in our head saying how terrible we are and how unprepared we are and with meditation you can change your relationship to that repeated thoughts and realize those thoughts for the errors that they present you so that helps as you go into the the episode it gives you more confidence and it gives you a better sense of reality about what you confront i think the meditation can help with compassion with any episode of mental illness you need to reach out to others You need other people. You need community, whether it's your family or your church community or a therapist that you pay. You need community and this mental illness getting you out of your own head and all of these terrible things you may be repeating to yourself and this complete self-absorption. It can open you up to this influence of others and, and the people you really need. And frankly, they need you too. And so the meditation can help you be centered enough and open enough to give back to others that are, that are giving to you. And that's so important. So that sets you up for success. And then the key though, once you know that episode is coming and you're open to the fact that you need help, it positions you to be able to go out and get that help. We co- we go from a very childish mind that wants everything now and is throwing tantrums to a more adult mind that can make good decisions, see where we can have positive impact on others and see where others can have positive impact on us. Seek out that help, whether it's a plan you've put together with your doctor to take a certain medicine or just sitting with a family member to have a discussion about how you feel, going to see a pastor to talk about your experience. You know, there's so many opportunities that can help a person pull back from that race into an episode of mental illness and really stabilize their life before things get out of control.
0: Nice. Now when you say that you're going to take help, you know, like okay, I need to seek more help at this point. I can feel it coming on. What does that look like? Cuz you're already finding the balance of your schedule, you're already finding the balance of the medicine that you agree with the doctor to be on, and you're taking it long-term, not up and down because I can cause more problems. What does that, okay, at this point, I'm meditating. I know there's an issue. I can feel it coming on. How do you neutralize that and get back to a balance?
1: The the first of the people in my life, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife, and she's, she's really made my work possible. Um, and so having, in advance, honest conversations with her about what I go through. I mean, I told her I had bipolar disorder on our first date. <laughs> so, you know, upfront right away uh, about this. And so having her understand some of the challenges I go through and some of the things that will tempt me, and then being honest with her when these experiences start so that we can totally support each other and she can be open and there for me, you know, finding the same thing in God, God is always available. Prayer is always available. Having a relationship with a doctor who I can call, you know, if I feel myself slipping into these things. So, and then, and then more than anything else, being present for my daughter. I mean, I've got responsibilities now and to take an inordinate risk would just be stupid. I've got things I have to live for and people I have to give back to. So, you know, th- those things can really help.
0: Okay, let me do this because this brings up a good point. Some people are at a low right now listening and they don't have a supportive spouse. Yes. And worse than not having a spouse is having an unsupportive spouse. Absolutely. I I mean, honestly, (laughs) male or female, if you've got a bad spouse, that's pretty rough. And we understand that. But for the people who don't have loved ones to talk to, for the people who don't have that necessary support group or don't feel they have it, because- our mind can play tricks on us. We might have the most loving, supportive family and friends, but we're being lied to and we're lying to ourselves that we don't. But speak to those people for a minute because they, they really need help. They're hearing like, well, yeah, George made it, but he had a support system. Well, you didn't have your wife at first, mm-hmm. but you, you made a great comment that God's always there. So, yeah,
1: God's, all, God's always there. And, you know, to add on the people who have difficulty with support, I mean, they may not even have the supportive people in their life, but they may not have the means to pay for a mental illness treatment, or they may be one of those people that's in a category where the treatment's just not effective. There are treatment-resistant episodes of mental illness as well. And I think what we can do, and we can do this directly through God, to come out as benefit for and getting benefit from other humans, because there are other people facing the same challenges, mm-hmm. there are many peer groups available there are I mean one, one of the disturbing things and positive things about the COVID crisis is that it's forced us all online, and there are incredible resources there. We can find people who we can speak with or just listen to to feel that sense of community. but the feeling that you're not alone. Is crucial. Many people are able to feel that through God. Other people through peer groups, which you can find. There's the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance that has chapters in every city. You know, there are places to look to sit down with people who have similar experience so you don't feel so alone. COVID crisis is interesting because you mentioned how we have that pause in life. Some of us. Because of this, Mm -hmm. you can look at that pause either as solitude, which can be a tremendously amazing choice to make, or loneliness, which can be really damaging. Again, we've got the same situation, the same set of factors, but there's a mindset that positions it either as positive solitude or loneliness. If a person's lonely, they need to reach out, and hopefully, they'll have people in their life that can help them with that. But even if they don't, you need to search out other people. You need to search out reasonable, helpful answers. And more than anything else, just as you want to practice silence in yourself, it's important to seek out other people who will just sit in silence with you. Say, you know, that's okay. I understand why you're feeling these things. If you need help, let me help, but not jump in there and right away say, no, this is wrong. You need to do it this way or you're bad or things like that. So as we need silence alone, we need to meditate in community, too, and have those silent moments with other people. And so somebody who's facing these problems that don't have the people in their lives that are as supportive as I've been fortunate to have, you can find that in peers. Just like people with substance abuse, drinkers will go to AA or people will go to narcotics anonymous sitting there with people who have a similar experience is emboldening can really help. And that's why in the work I do, I mean, I don't have any credentials. I don't have the PhD, the research, all of the grant money behind me. All I have is my own experience, but that's experience that many people have shared and in community, in community, we can always find answers. So we just have to take the step toward finding community and finding people that can share with us and sit with us.
0: Yeah, again, I couldn't agree with you more. The the power of a real relationship with God changes lives. And I know when I was 15, I had a dysfunctional situation and I thought I was losing it. Like I legitimately... Thought I was losing it when I was 15, just so many different pressures. I felt alone. And then I remember going to a church because I wanted answers. And I was literally at the point where, I'm like, should I commit myself? Am I losing my grip here on life? And I just started listening and asking questions and reading my Bible and seeing how all truth comes from God. Every answer, every question I had, there was an answer in the Bible. And ever since then, it's been stable as can be. Because of my rock mm-hmm. is Christ. And what George is saying, though, I had a pastor and I had people in that church who helped me. And the Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron, so the a countenance of a friend. God put us here to help one another. Even going back to the spouse, the design of marriage is not only a symbolic relationship of us and God, but it's to, sh- to be each other's help me. to strengthen one each other and help each other and to encourage one another and always to glorify God. So, George, there's everything he's saying is bringing right down the biblical line, how to have a great life and how to have joy and peace and contentment. So, we're moving fast, we're moving through a lot of information, and some of the things we're so callous to hearing, but they're huge. Don't be afraid to reach out. You know, we have a remarkable community of listeners. You can reach out on the Facebook page. You can reach out to George. I'm mean, going to put his info in the show notes. You can reach out to me, and we'll try to help you the best we can. But we're going to also try to connect you with people that can help you locally, and you can commune with, and you can fellowship with, because that's irreplaceable. There's only so much George and I can do through Zoom, right? I Mm. mean, we we can be a friend, but Mm. there's only so far that can go. So, all right, George. So now you're taking people down. They're meditating. They're listening for these moments of okay. I'm about to lose it. I need more help here. Continue that. They're 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 getting that under control now. For you, you had this happen. You've had no bumps in the road, right? It's all been smooth sailing, right? Or, it, it there's took, ups it, and downs.
1: It took a little while, and there's still ups and downs. Absolutely. I mean, the pain's still there, and and the episodes still threaten to take me out of control. But I th- I think developing the capacity to recognize it developing the capacity to predict when the episodes come and also having established interventions that can help me at these moments. Yeah. It's, it it hasn't leveled things out. I mean, I have bipolar disorder. There is no cure for bipolar disorder. You can manage it with medication. You can manage it with meditation, but the person will always have it. So these challenges will always present themselves. So what meditation has been able to do for me is just help me confront these challenges and be more prepared when these challenges do arise. Because I haven't been in the hospital. I've had a family. I've been able to live a successful life recently, but it still comes up from time to time. And uh, I have to make good decisions and be prepared to deal with those episodes when they do arise.
0: To to help, first off, put it realistic base, so a realistic expectation. But from what I understand, even though it still happens, instead of it being like this, it gets lower. I mean, your ups and downs, are they as severe as they were before? They threatened
1: they threaten to be, but they're not because of acts I take, you know, the meditating, the interventions with family doctor support groups, you know, those things that come early. So they don't tend to ramp out of control. You can intervene early and keep the keep the waves a little lower the blessing we have right now that seems terrible, but the blessing we have right now for understanding and for learning to manage that is that, I mean, with the coronavirus pandemic, how can you not be anxious right now? Everybody's experiencing this to a certain extent. And as you've mentioned, there are real blessings here and there are real challenges here. But The work I've been doing recently with the book and some other work is turning, pivoting a little bit from people who have severe mental illness to helping people who, because of the situation, it's situational, but because of the situation, they're facing anxiety, depression, things like that, and helping get information to them that can help them get through this challenging time without it, again without those episodes of anxiety or depression becoming so severe that they become disabling. It's the person's life.
0: Awesome. So we've gone through a lot of your past before we get into where you are today, where you're going and doing a, a sample meditation. Is there anything else we miss that's significance that you want to share? I mean, I, I have to, come back
1: to my relationship with my family who have been accepting because I just not, not with my wife, you know, since, since I met my wife, I've already been in a stable period. So it's been a strong marriage. It's been a good marriage without facing unreasonable challenges of bad behavior. But prior to that, you know, with my family, with my parents, with my brothers and sisters, I did some terrible things to really alienate myself from them, but they were accepting enough to bring me back you know, when I was ready for that and needed that. So that's one thing. The other thing that, that I, I can't emphasize enough is the idea of faith in one's life. And faith is foundational. I write in my book about belief and uncertainty because belief is challenging because belief is a choice. If you believe in something, you've either chosen to believe it or you've chosen not to. Faith is there and faith is something that's foundational to all of us. It's available to all of us. We just need to explore that, explore a relationship with God and be not so closed, to be open to ideas. And I think the thing that has helped me most is when I became open to ideas. I went through a period in my life where there was no way. I was going to church. There was no way I was going to believe that stuff. But I remained open to ideas. And for me, through the practice of the Psalms and meditation, the ideas started to make sense. So I think what anybody can do besides some of the therapies we've already talked about and the mindset we've already talked about is try to stay open. I think we always need to challenge our beliefs because they are choices. And if we challenge them, we can make them stronger if they're real or find more truth in them. We need to challenge them and we need to stay open-minded enough to listen to other people and especially to listen to what God is telling us and how that influence can change our life so an open mind is really important and that's a challenge today because in so many aspects of our so- of our society right now people are absolutely sure about what they know and what they don't know you know we we all need to take a step back and pause and just consider another point of view for a moment because that openness will give us more strength in our own faith and more strength in the things that work for us and connect us to our community
0: yeah- and again, uh, you're spot on man. I agree with you quite completely um what you're doing since saying right at the end remind me, I don't want to misquote it. I believe it was John Adams, and he said how the scariest thing in the world is someone who knows the right, yeah, <laughs> you know it's like it's it's um I misquoted that, I might have even said the wrong author, but it's basically saying that. When people are so sure they're right because it's what they've been told and they don't know what they believe and why, they just know they're right, yeah, that that can turn out ugly many times and, over.
1: And, you know, what what better example? You know, in the beginning, what earlier we talked about the, the – it says in the Bible that Jesus meditated in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if Jesus Christ was having these doubts, you know, these questions about – what is right? What is wrong? Do I really need to go through with this? You know, how can we condemn ourselves from being da- having doubts? And at the same time with what you said, David, how can we be so sure we're right unless we give a pause to listen? You know, because Jesus meditating in Gethsemane, it reinforced his assurance that he had to do what he did to save you know, we, by questioning what we're absolutely right about and being open-minded, we can come to that same kind of understanding that the decisions we're making are helpful to us and helpful to others. And, but it, it I mean, doubt's very important. I think doubt is foundational to faith.
0: Yeah. Having that time to think through what you believe and question it, you know, when all your questions are answered in the Bible, will do that. Then you have that certainty. This is the real. This is real. And like you were talking about belief, it says even the demons believe in God, but they don't trust them. You know, they don't trust them. And in Hebrews 11, faith, faith is what changes things and faith is what saves us. Um, And just,
1: uh, you know, a note there, David, I mean, anxiety, anxiety that we're feeling now, it comes when uncertainty collides with our beliefs. And right now we have so much uncertainty in the world. Who knows what life is going to look like this time next year. So, so many beliefs we have about ourselves and we have about our society are being challenged. So this collision between uncertainty and belief causes anxiety and we need to sit in silence and listen to God, to our own mind and what it presents ourselves and with each other. To be able to assuage this anxiety, to moderate some of the uncertainty, and to make sure we're believing in the right stuff that's going to get us to a good place.
0: Yeah, well said, well said. So from here, let's take some time. And again, if there's anything else you want to discuss, let's talk about it. I don't want to do that. But where is George today? Where are you at today? I know you just released a new book, part of a 10-part series. Where are you at with that? How's that going?
1: That's going great. I mean, I've released the book. It's called Resilience, Handling Anxiety in a Time of Crisis. It came about with an assignment from my publisher because I'm working on a book that's going to be released in 2021. That's a big book about many of the things we've spoken about today. Using meditation, meaningful work which we haven't talked about, but that's crucial and movement practices to help moderate, predict and manage mental illness. But the the publisher assigned a few of us, the task of writing a 20,000 word book in 20 days that could help people in the coronavirus crisis right now. And so, yeah, that that's been a real great experience because I was able to boil down some of these ideas we've talked about and, uh, put it out there. And right now I'm speaking with a lot of people And thank, thanks to you. I'm speaking with a lot of people.
0: And, yeah. You know, and we'll, put, we'll put a link in the show notes to your books. So people
1: can continue the help. Wonderful. Wonderful. Because I mean that, that I think in, in God giving me this ability to overcome the mental illness, I have to use that for, for good. And so, as I said, my mission is to normalize mental illness. My people is to, my mission is to enable people to realize there is help and some things they can do to help them through this. And so I'm just working really hard to get that message out there because it's, it's a very important time for everybody, not just people with mental illness, to get some simple, simple skills to be able to moderate the dangerous things that mental illness can do.
0: Yeah, and you just had a big moment. You said you had a book launch in your hometown or virtual book launch, right? Last night. Last night. Yeah. yeah
1: it was it was fun to see a lot of I mean, the bookstore. It's it's considered one of the best bookstores in Philadelphia, but it's right down the street from me. I walk four blocks and I'm at this bookstore. That's awesome. And if, of course, we did it virtually. We're still shut down when we record this and there was nobody getting together in the bookstore to drink wine and eat cheese like you usually do in a normal book launch. But uh, we were on Zoom. There were a lot of people. I got a lot of questions and it was just a really great night. It was a really great night to launch the book right here in my hometown at the bookstore I always shop at. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: That's something special, man. Mm-hmm. That's super special, congratulations. Thank you. All right, well, you know what? Talk about movement and meaningful work quickly. Like, And I don't wanna rush you, but I'm saying don't feel like you have to expound on it deeply, but to the level you'd like, talk about movement and meaningful work.
1: Yeah, the, the, I, I position them as other opportunities for focused attention to really notice what's going in your, on your yourself and what episodes of mania, depression or anxiety may be coming on to you movement Um, I, I, I write about things as simple as going out for a walk and turning that into a meditation and exercise. Many people who have mental illness have comorbid physical conditions that are the ones that kill them. I mean, everything from smoking to cardiac disease, these are all common comorbidities with mental illness and through movement, we can get healthy. When our lives are out of control, our physical fitness is one of the few things we have control over that we can positively impact. And I write about turning movement into a practice, not running with earbuds, not being in the gym with the mirrors and the music and all that stuff, but spending some time to just move on your own, again, in silence, to learn about your body and to feel things that are coming up of you. Work, I think, is foundational. Work is the most important practice anybody can do in their life. And I don't necessarily mean just paid employment. It can be a hobby. It can be something productive, something creative. But work is foundational. And I've spent a lot of time in both Zen monasteries and Christian monasteries. And yes, you meditate a lot during these retreats at these monasteries, but they also put you to work. And it's funny because I every time I go to a monastery, I seem to always get a sign cleaning the bathroom. It's <laughs> always. I was at I was at a monastery in California a, a year ago having a retreat and the the, the workmaster said, Who here is very good in the kitchen? So I raised my hand. You know, I'm I'm good in the kitchen and he looked at me and he said, Men's bathroom. So, you know, there, <laughs> there, there was a lesson there. But you know, work if if we're not working. And working to produce good for others, I don't think we're living at all. So meaningful work can become a practice. It can become a way we positively impact the world. And I think it's crucial in life to have something to get up and have to do and want to do to be able to live a healthy life.
0: Yeah. And how many people are selling books today just on that premise of find your purpose? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's an in, that's something that God put inside of us to find him. And to have meaningful purpose but everybody looks for all these things in a different way and 70% plus people aren't satisfied with what they're doing in life and with their day job and that purpose and that work that George is talking about is absolutely crucial you need to know you had a purpose and even you know as much as I hate to bring it up I remember the studies you ever read about Hitler and the all I mean he did horrible things but Mm -hmm. did you ever read the work camps and the experiments they do with moving the dirt? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he'd have one group move dirt back and forth. move this huge pile across, move this huge pile across. And that's all they did every day. And those people went insane and died very quickly. Mm -hmm. And he had another group that he'd have moved the same amount of dirt, but he'd have them build structures, Mm -hmm. some purpose. And those people would live far longer and fight harder because they had purpose. So even though Hitler's a satanic, evil human, that sense of purpose shows through in that study that he did. And what George is saying is the purpose of what we do is very important. And when you talk about movement and running, that's biologically proven that our body reduces, it releases endorphins mm-hmm. and all sorts of chemicals to help us. So, man, that's awesome, George. Thank you. Thank you. So, okay. Where is George going in the future? What's going on with you in the future? Where are we expect to see George a year from now? Uh, Hopefully selling another, well, I will be selling another book. I've got a book contract,
1: so I've got to finish it by September. (laughs) No pressure. um, No pressure, but no, I mean, I hope you find me spreading this message. I mean, again, I have a mission to normalize mental illness and, I, I don't have the credentials or the knowledge to go out there and preach and really talk about God and really bring people to God. There are other people who do that very well, people that I've even followed. But I do have the ability to go out and talk about mental illness and teach people people to open up things in their life so that something like God may enter them and and present themselves to them. Or even if that doesn't happen, to give people the skills they need to manage their mental illness and to be well, to be well. And I hope that's the work I can continue to do.
0: Amen. Now, listen, getting an education formally and getting some letters after your name, obviously you'll learn. Mm Mm-hmm. But if I had to learn from someone with three letters who's never practically experienced it firsthand, or if I could talk to you who's been a wealth of knowledge for this entire interview, and I know we're just scratching the surface, rest assured, me and I'm sure our remarkable listeners would much rather be with you than anybody else with a PhD <laughs> and on some Freudian couch, man. Yeah. Well, so, reach,
1: reach out to me. I mean, I really have a mission here, so I'm open if people email me with questions or, or just want to be in touch to tell me their story. I mean, I would love to hear from people and be in touch. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So I'm going to give you a chance. Anything else that we didn't hit or anything else you want to cover, I'm going to give you a chance in one minute. But if not, what we're going to do for the audience, thank you for being here today. Check out the show notes. Look at the links. Reach out to George if you need help. If you don't have a Bible, let me know. And let's move forward together. If we can help you in any way, you can reach out through our Facebook group. You can reach out through the website remarkablepeoplepodcast.com, DavidPasquale.com forward slash RPP. Um, tons of ways to get a hold of us. But reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We want to help you because, like George said, his mission is normalizing mental illness. My mission is to help as many people as I can so we can glorify God and be whole and heal together and live in eternity and peace. So let us help you and you help us fulfill our mission. George, is there anything else you want to say before we close up this episode and go to a practice meditation session? No, this has been a tremendous experience, David. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank you to the listeners. We love you. Stick around for the meditation practice session. Um, I'm not sure as I'm recording this, we're just going to continue on with this, or if we're going to pause a minute and then put an extra link in, you can download. But either way, check it out. So this is Dave Passman with the Remarkable People Podcast. George, you truly are a remarkable human and I'm proud to be your friend. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, David.
1: The Remarkable People
0: Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable
1: People Podcast. Listen. Do.
0: Repeat. For life.